Welcome to the First Apostolic Church Podcast. Our church mission is to love as God loves, showing compassion to every soul, thus winning those souls and equipping them to be sent out to plant and to harvest. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope that you are blessed by today's podcast. being said, Brother Mason, of course, did not finish uh, the discipleship series lesson on a Christian family. And so he will be here Sunday morning, uh, continuing in that vein of a Christian family for for Sunday morning. And so you don't want to miss that as well. We're continuing tonight in the third book of John. We're going to begin reading with verse number nine. Amen. With verse number nine. Appreciate everybody's prayers for us in our absence uh, going to Nashville and coming back home and uh, felt like uh, felt like just lived a total, total different life uh, having the stay, stay at home order uh, being over here on the last Friday and leaving and going to Nashville eating in restaurants and going to the mall and going to church and people were there and uh, preaching to people and so but with, with anticipation and desire, we're hoping to get back to some means of normalcy here within our own city and state as well. John 3 and verse number 9, the Bible says, and, and let's set the stage here just a little bit. Last week, we talked about, tell me what you know. Uh, and, uh, of course, the Lord knew man and what was in man. Nicodemus told what he knew concerning Jesus Christ that he was a teacher evidently come from God because no man could do these miracles except God be with him. And of course Jesus' response to him is something that he told Nicodemus that he knew is that every man regardless who they were, what their status was, that they must be born again. He told him about being born of the water and the spirit. And so verse 9 is Nicodemus's response to everything Jesus had told him about being born of the water and the spirit, making the analogy with the wind and so on and so forth. Here's Nicodemus's response. So I want to preface that here tonight. Verse 9, Nicodemus answered and said unto him, he's speaking to Jesus, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said unto him, art thou a master of Israel and knowest not these things? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, we speak that we do know and testify that we have seen and ye receive not our witness. If I had told you earthly things and you believe not, how shall I believe? How shall ye believe if I tell you of heavenly things? And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the son of man, which is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have ever eternal rather life. Probably the most known verse in all of Scripture across the world, or at least in the United States, verse 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doth evil hateth the light, 
neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be reproved. But he that doeth truth cometh to the light, that his deeds may be made manifest, that they are wrought in God. So, last week, our lesson title was, Tell Me What You Know. This week, our lesson title is, Here's What You Don't Know. All right? Here's, here's what you don't know. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer that he would have his perfect way here tonight. Father, I love you, Jesus, this evening. I pray, O oh Lord, that you're able to give us guidance and direction through your word tonight. God, speak, Lord Jesus, through the word. God, let it be, Lord God, life, Lord Jesus, into the hearers. God, I pray, O oh Lord, grant us understanding tonight. Let your Holy Ghost teach, touch each of us afresh and anew by your spirit. In the lovely name of Jesus Christ that I pray, amen and amen. God bless you tonight in Jesus' name. So what we have here in this passage of Scripture as Nicodemus responds unto Jesus Christ, how these things, how can these things be? Jesus, in one venue, in one avenue of uh, returning response unto Nicodemus, makes light of the fact that Nicodemus was a master, as the Scripture says, of the Jews. In another place, it calls him a teacher of the Jews. Jesus says, this is you, master and teacher of the Jews, and yet you know not, you know not these things that I've been speaking to you about, which you've been talking to him about being born again, more plainly being born of the water and of the spirit in order to enter the kingdom of God. And I believe perhaps what Jesus was getting at uh, was the fact that this being born again of water and spirit went beyond the tradition that Nicodemus was so familiar with. It went beyond just the ceremony that he had been reared and instructed in and concerning even the law uh, that he had known. Uh, that this being born again of water and the spirit uh, included and encompassed and concerned the Messiah that they were all looking for, and yet Nicodemus seemed to, in certain regards, be missing what was being stated. Not only that, but this idea of water and spirit coming forcefully together, water and spirit coming together at this juncture in the Scripture, uh, it had been spoken of in many regards before in the Old Testament, in the prophecy of the book of Ezekiel. And surely Nicodemus being a teacher of the scriptures, a teacher of the Jews and of Israel, he would have been familiar with these prophecies. And yet it seems as though he has forgotten them or they are not in the forefront of his mind as Jesus talks about being born of the water in the spirit. And so even if Nicodemus, and I believe perhaps in a certain, in a certain means that Nicodemus may have believed that this being born of water and spirit was, was possible. He just wasn't sure how it could be accomplished, how it could be carried out. Uh, it wasn't so much maybe perhaps that he didn't believe that it wasn't so. He just didn't know the how the ability, the capability of how that would take place because uh, in reality, now even in New Testament Scripture, but in reality, a man can repent of his sins. Nobody else has to be there. No one else needs to be around. A man uh, can repent of his sins all by himself. But usually in Scripture, as it is 
played out. Another man then is there whenever an individual decides to be baptized, right? When that same man that may have repented of his sins by himself, another man must come into play in order to baptize that man for the remission of his sins or as John's baptism was for a signal of his repentance. But according to the word of the Lord and according to what John the Baptist has already declared to us, only Jesus could baptize you with the Holy Ghost. Only Jesus could baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And we come to find out very soon that that was only really made possible by his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit, but we don't see that taking place necessarily in his earthly ministry of people being baptized with the Spirit because it would take his death, burial, and resurrection, amen, in order for that aspect of the infilling of the Spirit to be possible. So Nicodemus may be weighing even some of these things in his mind. Uh, Jesus, you're talking to me about being born of water and of Spirit, and I understand and I see where perhaps the born of water aspect can take place, but if Christ Jesus is the only one that can bestow the spirit do the baptism of the spirit then exactly how does all of this uh, happen how does this take place and so before we look at Jesus's response to how these things can be which was the begging question in the back of Nicodemus's mind let's take a moment and look at the Old Testament passage the scripture of prophecy in the book of Ezekiel that ties some of this water and spirit things together all the way back even the Old Testament Ezekiel chapter 36 in verse number 25 Verses through 27 read like this. The Bible says, Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you, and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness, and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you, and a new spirit will I put within you. I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you an heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and ye shall keep my judgments and do them. Now, this particular setting, the scripture in Ezekiel 36, we must understand the setting and the context in which this is set. The Lord is the one that has, of course, taken these actions toward Israel or in, in, in concerning Israel. He's taken these actions because Israel, prior to this moment that we read, verses 25 through 27, Israel has been in a position and a place that they have profaned the name of the Lord. They profaned the name of the Lord among the heathen nations, among the heathen people. And so the Lord is telling Israel, he says, I'm going to take you from among those heathen nations. I'm going to take you from among those heathen lands, all of those countries. And I'm going to bring you back to your own country. I'm going to bring you back to your mother country of Israel, namely the city of Jerusalem. And when I bring you back, I want to sanctify you. I want to set you apart. And so it's in those three verses of Ezekiel that we read, verses 25 through 27, that the Lord is doing his sanctification of Israel. He has brought them back to their land, to their country, separated them from the heathens, and he is sanctifying them through water, amen, and through giving them a new spirit. And it causes them, to, after receiving that new spirit, to walk in the statutes and the judgments and those things that the Lord had ordained 
ordained for them to walk according to. See, under the Old Covenant, or what we might call the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, an unclean person was cleansed by the sprinkling of water mixed with the ashes of a heifer. What I'm talking to you about right now is what was known in the Old Covenant, Old Testament, as the law of purification. They would take the water and they would take the ashes of a heifer, which meant that there was a sacrifice that had to take place in order to get the, the, the ashes of a heifer. They would mix those together, dip, dip the hyssop down in that water, and they would sprinkle an individual with that, and that individual would be made clean. This was part of the Old Testament law purifying right. As a matter of fact, they would do that on the third day, I believe it is, and the seventh day. And the Bible says on the seventh day in the process, then that person that had been sprinkled was to bathe themselves in water to complete the process. And then they were capable of being accepted back into the camp of the children of God. Look at it, if you will, in Numbers 19, verses 17 through 19. Again, these are the laws of purification for sin. It says, for and for an unclean person, they shall take of the ashes of the burnt heifer a purification for sin, and running water shall be put thereto in a vessel. And a clean person, so here it is again, uh, note that the unclean person couldn't do this for themselves. It took a clean person to do this with them in conjunction with them a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water and sprinkle it upon the tent and upon the vessels and upon the persons that were there and upon him that toucheth a bone or one slain or one dead or a grave because touching any of those things would have made a person unclean and the clean person shall sprinkle upon the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day and on the seventh day he shall purify himself and wash his clothes and bathe themselves in water and shall be clean at even almost said evening that's just the good old king james even so under the old covenant a sacrifice under the laws of purification a sacrifice was necessary along with water to bring about a cleansing for an individual to be accepted back into the camp to change the identity from being unclean to clean well, under the New Covenant and the New Testament, a sacrifice was necessary along with water to bring about a cleansing for a New Testament individual as well. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1 and 7 concerning the necessity of the sacrifice, the Bible says, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So under the old covenant, there was a component of sacrifice. The ashes from a sacrifice with water sprinkled to necessitate the cleansing of an individual. But under the new covenant, Jesus is consistently showing us that there is a better way. Remember what he did with the, the, the purifying water pots, what he did there at the temple. He is consistently showing us there is a better way. So there is still a component of sacrifice. That is the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ along with immersion in water in the name of Jesus Christ to necessitate a cleansing of a New Testament individual. Amen. There is a baptism old covenant 
for the cleansing of individual, a sprinkling with water. But all of those things, and we'll look at this a little more tonight, those things of Old Testament, God many times used as a shadow for something that was better that would be relayed in the New Testament. Amen. He used things in, in the Old to condition our minds and our thinking toward a direction of something that he would present to us under the New Testament or the New Covenant. And so now we have baptism and we have the blood of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ that cleanses us of our sin and when we speak of baptism in the New Testament uh, uh, in the Greek in which it is written it means to dip or submerge we're speaking of immersion for that matter uh, uh, extra biblical uh, writings during the same time of the first century that uses the word baptism in the Greek language. That word is used for clothes being being baptized or immersed in dye for the dyeing of clothes. That word is used even of ships that were uh, in storms that came submerged beneath the waves of storms. Same word that's being used uh, as we use in baptism. It's also used of a person uh, in extra biblical writings of that time who are so drunk that they are, they are spoken of as being soaked in drink. All right? They are just slap happy drunk. They are totally immersed in drunkenness. Amen. The same thing that we use from our baptism. Not only that, Baptism in itself, consider baptism in itself. It is probably uh, the, the, the greatest pictorial of death, burial, and resurrection that you'll ever see just within itself. Because number one, you have some, you're in the hands of another, okay, as they baptize you. It's as though you, 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 control has been relinquished, death. You're put down in the water as burial, but you're brought back up as resurrection. And it's almost pictorially, amen, a death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But let's continue on in the book of Ezekiel, that, that Nicodemus, uh, being a teacher of the Jews and a Pharisee for that matter, very well acquainted with the law and the scriptures, uh, should have had some type of uh, understanding and remembrance of. Continuing in Ezekiel, the Bible even continues to tell us not just about the water that's involved and the sacrifice that's involved, but the Lord told Israel, he said, I'm going to put a new spirit within you. I'm going to give you a new heart, and I'm going to put a new spirit within you, Israel. And he clarifies in verse number 27 that he says, I will put my spirit within you. All right. Uh, so he clarifies what the new spirit is. He says, I'm going to put my spirit within you. See, Israel, Israel had not done well at keeping the statutes and the judgments of God. They had not done well by walking according to his ways. But the Lord told Israel, he says, I'm going to remove your stony heart, a heart that that cannot be impressed upon. A heart that is an impervious uh, surface, if you will. It's very hard and rigid. I'm going to take the stony heart and I'm going to replace it with a heart of flesh. A heart that can be impressed. A heart that can be, if you will, malleable and impressed upon. Rather than being uh, impenetrable, I'm going to put a heart of impression in you. And so he says, then I'm going to cause my spirit to come inside of you. And my spirit, 
if you know in Ezekiel, he says, my spirit then is going to cause you to do the very things that I desire for you to do. Where you could not walk according to my statutes or my judgments formally with my spirit inside you. If you yield yourself to it, it will help you walk according to those ways and according to my ordinances and my direction. Amen. That was great for Old Testament for Israel, but that's even great for New Testament saints. Uh, part and parcel uh, the reason of the spirit living inside of us is to help us to live our Christian life. Uh, it's to help us keep the commands of God. It's to help us to walk according to his word. But the Bible tells us in the gospel of John, Nicodemus, as a master teacher, I might say, in Israel, he would have no doubtly, undoubtedly been uh, acquainted with all of these writings of the prophets and the prophecies that had come forward from uh, long ago. And yet the Bible seems to indicate to us by what Jesus says, uh, you being a master of Israel, know it's not these things. Somehow Nicodemus has missed the correlation between the old covenant and what Jesus was introducing to him as a new and better covenant for that matter Jesus spoke to Nicodemus and he speaks really on behalf of himself and what I believe he speaks on behalf of himself and John the Baptist and he tells Nicodemus he says we spoke to you what we've known what we knew and we spoke to you uh, the things we've testified to you the things that we have seen and yet our witness unto you and to the Jews and to others has not been received and so Jesus continues. I mean, whenever Jesus starts giving his response, uh, it's not just yes or no or maybe. He, he's, he's on a journey here. He's got quite a dialogue going. That's one-sided for a little while because Jesus goes on and talks to this, this ruler of the Jews. He says, Nicodemus, he says, if I just told you earthly things, right? Because here's the thing. Jesus was known in his earthly ministry for relaying many times heavenly things by making comparisons to earthly things. That's just the way that Jesus taught. In his parables, most of the time, he's talking to people about something that they are familiar with, agriculture, something that they know in order to relay a heavenly or a spiritual matter, a spiritual truth. And so whenever Jesus had been talking to Nicodemus about being born of the water and being born of the Spirit, Jesus likened this whole born of the Spirit experience to the natural wind, a earthly thing. And Jesus is saying, if I use earthly things in order to explain heavenly things, and you don't believe the earthly things in correlation to the heavenly things, he says, then you're just probably not going to believe. You're not going to get the concept. You're not going to get what's being conveyed to you if you don't pair these things together and make the correlation for yourself. And again, the Old Testament scripture is many times dealing with earthly things that in the New Testament is going to be conveying spiritual heavenly truths for us. But the minds of the people had already been conditioned. Consider, if you will, Hebrews chapter number 10 and verse number 1. The writer of Hebrews says this. He says, for the law, having a shadow. Speaking of all the old uh, covenant things. The law having a shadow of good things to come. Not the very image of the things 
can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers there into perfect. We have in the old covenant a, 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 a worship system unto the Lord that is based primarily upon sacrifice and offerings in, in some way. There's certain things that are to be brought for sin offerings, trespass offerings, so on and so forth. But this was conditioning the mind of Israel and the people concerning their approach to God. For that matter, atonement for the nation of Israel was made through a sacrifice annually once a year amen for the people pushing their sins forward once a year and so the minds of the people are conditioned around that to bring them into the new covenant where the lamb of God that John has already been introducing us to John the Baptist the lamb of God to take away the sin of the world is a sacrifice Jesus Christ is sacrifice that will occur even in the gospel of John on Mount Calvary amen for our approach amen to the Lord then to make an atonement for us then and so there's a very very basic uh, earthly thing amen that's conditioning us for a heavenly thing to come about in the new covenant and so that's the way that things work uh, many old testament earthly things have new testament spiritual heavenly counterparts um for instance, also in the Old Testament, there are, there are verses and chapters upon chapters that are spent on the tabernacle of Moses in the wilderness. The outer court, right? Uh, then we have the place where the holy place is and the holies of holies and even the furnishings of the tabernacle. All of that in reality is conditioning us, amen, and what took place in the Old Old Testament tabernacle we understand is just a reflection or a pattern of a heavenly tabernacle the book of Hebrews also bears that out. Hebrews 8 and verse number 5. It says who, and the who it was referring to is the priests and the high priests who serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. It was talking about natural priests and natural high priests. They are serving unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern, shoot to thee in the mount. He said, as Moses was admonished of God. In other words, Moses, what you're about ready to create on the earth, amen, the pattern has already been given and more predominantly set in the heavenlies. What you will have in the earthly in the Old Testament is just a reflection of what is in the heavenlies. But I'm giving you the earthly to condition you for what's in the heavenly. Amen. And so whenever Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he's trying to stir up, if you will, the mind of Nicodemus that if I present earthly, amen, and if you believe it not, how are you going to believe the heavenly things? Because I'm conveying to you being born of water and spirit. And these are very, very heavenly things, but they have had their roots in some earthly things. And I've even tried to make it an analogy for you, Nicodemus. As the wind, so is everyone that is born of the spirit and so our belief and our acceptance of the earthly things again for Israel for the New Testament saints for us even today is conditioning was conditioning amen Nicodemus and others for the revelation of the true heavenly things which the earthly according to scripture just a mere shadow of what was to come for that matter concerning the testimony and the witness of Jesus Christ you could have no better witness than the witness of Jesus Christ. 
John the Baptist, I know he served as a witness and the miracles of Jesus served as witness and the disciples no doubt came, amen, as witnesses as well. But you could have no better witness or testimony than Jesus Christ, God manifested in the flesh. The word John 1.14 said was made flesh because, and Jesus relays this to Nicodemus, because he that, a, he that descended, right, with this verse number uh, 13 said, no man ascended up except he that descended, right? So he's relating unto Nicodemus that, yes, the Son of Man came down from heaven. And for that matter, we know that the Son of Man was going to ascend back up into heaven in his ascension after his resurrection. But what Jesus is conveying to Nicodemus is this, that no other man except Jesus Christ had a better handle on heavenly things than Jesus, right? John was born, John the Baptist was born, and he heard and received instruction from God on what he should say and do. But Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. And so you're not going to get a better testimony or anybody with a better handle on heavenly things than him. And so Jesus relates that the Son of Man came down from heaven and he's in heaven. Look, even let me read again the scripture. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, Jesus says, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. So we got a whole lot of heaven going on. He said he came down from heaven, but he is in heaven. Jesus, again, be conveying in just this simple little verse, and what we've already had conveyed in John thus far, conveying the dual nature of the Son of Man. The dual nature of Jesus Christ is conveyed in this moment. Because God, as a spirit, John 4, 24, uh, tells us this in our, in our very, very, very next chapter that we'll get to, not tonight. <laughs> John 4, 24 speaks to us that God, as a spirit, manifested himself as the man Christ Jesus in the flesh, on the earth. And although God as a spirit manifested himself in the flesh, God as a spirit did not cease being omnipresent spirit that filled all space and time of eternity. God as a spirit manifested him in the flesh at Jesus Christ, but was still God in the heavens. <laughs> Because ultimately, God is a spirit, and he only chose through the man Christ Jesus to manifest himself as a man in that earthly ministry, in that earthly life, rather, of Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, he came down but still was. Mm -hmm. In that sense, he came down, amen, as flesh in the man Christ Jesus but still was that omnipresent spirit that filled heaven, Christ, and every other nook and cranny of space and time throughout eternity. In verse 14, Jesus is now starting to respond then how these things that Nicodemus cannot understand uh, how these things can be. Jesus starts to respond how these things can be, how this being born of the water and of the Spirit can take place. And this is how they will be accomplished. This is the means that he shares with, with Nicodemus in verse number 14. And he reaches back again to an Old Testament, Old Covenant, earthly thing. He says, Jesus says in verse 14, and as Moses lifted up the serpent... 
in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Now, I'm going to try to, to, I hope, maybe bring some clarity here without uh, muddying people's waters a little bit more because people sometimes, they do all kinds of comparisons in these scriptures. Well, uh, the serpent was lifted up. Christ was lifted up. The serpent was on the pole. Christ is on the pole. Christ is a serpent, you know. And we get all these parallels, all these parallels going. Jesus is drawing a comparison. I think this is important. Jesus is drawing a comparison between the serpent on the pole and the son of man on the cross. And their main point of connection, you hear me? Their main point of connection is that they were both set or lifted up. All right? John 12, verses 32 and 33 and we know what this lifted up or this setting up for Jesus is. It may not be totally conveyed here in John. If you have any type of biblical experience or a student of the word, you know what this is. But if you don't, the word helps us. Scripture interprets the scripture. Later in John 12, verses 32 and 33, uh, Jesus is speaking he's t- and, and he's getting close. When you get to John 12, you're getting close to crucifix. John 13, you got the washing of the feet and all this stuff. And so we're getting close to crucifix. And so Jesus says that he knows that his hour is near. All right, he knows that his hour is nigh. And uh, to speak about what hour, he's talking about his hour is near, and then he goes on talking about except a corn of wheat fall on the ground and die, it biteth alone. But if it fall, or if it, it fall to the ground, it biteth alone, but if it fall and die, then it, it biteth not alone. And so he's talking about death. And he goes on then in verse 32 and says these words, and I, Jesus says, and I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all men, Unto me, verse 33 gives the clarification. John helps us out here. This he said, signifying what death he should die. And so the lifting up is talking about the being lifted up on the cross. The being lifted up, if you will, for the purpose of crucifix. And so with that in mind, taking that that interpretation of lifting up a scripture and applying it back in John chapter number three, Jesus says, as Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, even so must the son of man be lifted up. And so he is speaking about the crucifixion of himself. But John, and we find this over and over again in John, John uses expressions many times that have a surface meaning and then they also have a deeper meaning just by the words that he used. If you considered the verb lifted up in verse number 14 of John 3, it has two meanings or dual meanings. It means both to be crucified, but it also means to be glorified. To be crucified and to be glorified. Now here it is hard for humanity to bring harmony between the two because we would, we would be forever arguing that crucifix is glorification, Right? Because it almost demoralized. I mean, it just totally humiliates a man. But for Christ, his crucifixion was his glorification. All right? To be crucified was to be glorified. For that matter, going back to John chapter number 12 and verse number 23, where Jesus talks about his hour has come. He says the hour has come. This is the words verbatim. The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. And then he starts talking about, Wheat falling to the ground and dying. 
He starts talking about death. Jesus is picturing for us and letting us in that for him, his death, the glorification on Calvary was his glorification. That's how, again, back in, we'll look at this later, but in John 7, that last day of the feast, when he's saying, whosoever will, let him come. If he thirsts, drink of the water, so on and so forth. And then the Bible says, well, this he spake concerning the Holy Ghost, right? But the Holy Ghost was not given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Again, that is speaking about Calvary had not happened yet. Death, burial, resurrection had not happened yet. Amen. And so uh, the Holy Ghost was not yet given as a result of that. And so this was the way that the Son of Man, Jesus is relaying to Nicodemus, this is the way that the Son of Man was going to be glorified or the way that he was going to be lifted up was ultimately going to be by his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, let's pause for a moment, rewind and go way back to Numbers 21 where this whole instance of the serpent on the pole being set up even occurred and happened. And so we read, starting with verse number 7, all right, The Bible says, Numbers 21, verse 7, Therefore, the people came to Moses, this is Israel now, and said, We have sinned, and they had. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. They they had got to a place where it's like, you know, you brought us out here to the wilderness, let's go back to Egypt. And they had all this griping and complaining, and they were being hateful. So we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. They say, pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us, because the Lord sent the plague of the serpents out, started biting people, and people... Here's the correlation, though. The serpents were there as a result of their sin. You follow me? The serpents were there as a result of their sin. And so the Bible says, and Moses prayed for the people, verse 8, and the Lord said unto Moses, make, Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it up on a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon the pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. So here in the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21, there is an association between the serpents, all right, and Israel's sin, all right? The serpents had come upon the land because of Israel's sin. There's an association. Uh, much like, if I could even go as far back to the beginning in, the, in Genesis in the Garden of Eden, much like the serpent there has an association with the first transgression of mankind from the very beginning. All right? Nonetheless, that which was associated with their sin in Numbers 21, which was a serpent, God said, place that upon a pole, and when the people look to what's affixed to the pole, they will live. All right? So what I'm trying to get you, get you to understand here, here is a serpent that is associated with sin. Let's say it was fleas, and they had fleas out there, and it was a flea that was going to be raised on for me, the purpose of the animal in itself of what plagued them and what, what plagued them and what was associated with sin was affixed to the pole, all right? All right? Whether it was going to be a flea, let's say it was something else that happened, they put it, whatever it was, what, that thing was associated with their sin then affixed to the pole. And when people looked to that which was affixed to the pole that was associated with their sin, they lived. Follow me. That's old covenant. Consider new covenant. I got a few scriptures for us to walk through here. First John 3 and 5. The Bible says. 
And you know that he was manifested, speaking of Jesus Christ, to take away our sins. God was manifested in the flesh to take away our sins. Look, and in him is no sin. But 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Galatians, and we're just kind of walking through these. Galatians 3.13, Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That was Christ, who knew no sin but was made sin and put to the cross and by humanity standards then was cursed as a result of it. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh hath be quickened together with him having forgiven you all trespasses, verse 14, blotting out the handwriting of the ordinances that was against us which was contrary to us and took it out of the way nailing it to the cross. All right? So, He, speaking of Jesus Christ, he who knew no sin, right? And no sin was in him according to the scripture, but was made sin for us. Mm -hmm. What do you have? You have Jesus Christ then now who knew no sin, no sin in him was associated with sin. Are you following me? Amen. For us. That individual then was affixed to a cross. Mm -hmm. which according to the law denoted a cursed person. And for that matter, Colossians tells us the things that were against us, that they were nailed to the cross as Christ was nailed to the cross. In all of this, the scripture says, though, Christ has forgiven our sins, and through all this, he has made us the righteousness of God, and God was manifested basically in the flesh in order to take away our sins. So, Old Covenant, you have something, so happens to be a serpent that is associated with sin, and when they took that which was associated with sin and lifted it upon the pole, those who looked to that, amen, were then allowed to live. In the New Testament, we have Jesus Christ who knew no sin, no sin was in him, but he was made sin, and sin was associated with him, and it was lifted up on the cross. And now, by looking unto him, right? Where, where, where the, the sin is being judged up there. Now look into him. We likewise can live. Amen. Hallelujah. Someone say amen. And so Jesus tells Nicodemus, and really he's telling all men, because there's many times here that Jesus is speaking, when he speaks the ye, he's speaking that in a plurality, where he's not just speaking amen to Nicodemus, but a group. He's speaking to all men. He's telling him then, if you believe in him, Hallelujah. If you believe in him, you will not perish, but you'll have eternal life. And that agrees with what John the Beloved has been trying to write and will continue to write in the Gospel of John. That believing you might have life through his name. But that belief is more than just an affection of, oh yeah, I I believe you. No, it is a trust. It is a committal. It is a obedience. Oh yes. If you believe in him, it's not just casting your eyes toward him, but it's trusting him with your path. It's committing your life. It's being obedient to his death, burial, and resurrection. You will not perish. You'll have eternal life. Amen. Woo. Hallelujah. 
See, most understood, according to the Old Testament scripture, that God loved Israel. Okay? They are his peculiar treasure, the scripture, Old Testament scripture speaks of. God loved Israel. Matter of fact, there is no greater probably picture of God loving Israel than the book of Hosea. Where there is depicted in the scripture an unfaithful woman by the name of Gomer. Huh? In the book of Hosea, who has loved many, been with many. She's unfaithful, though. And God tells Hosea to marry her in spite of her shenanigans. Picturing through Hosea God's own love for the nation of Israel that had been unfaithful to him on multiple occasions and times. God loved Israel. That was known among the people. But the most known probably verse of the Bible of John 3, 16 just broadens the whole scope and scale. Everybody knew that God loved Israel. But Jesus tells Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews right now, that God so loved the world. He didn't have to tell Nicodemus that God loved Israel. Nicodemus knew that. But God just blew the scope of his love to a proportion of encompassing every living being upon the world. God so loved the world that he gave his son because he loved the world. Or if I might state it a little differently, God loved the world so much that God manifested himself in the flesh. The word was made flesh. He loved the world so much. Can I tell something? Can I tell you something tonight that God loved the world so much that, oh, help me, Jesus, that he didn't, ju- he didn't send the second person of the Godhead down to die for the world. God loved the world so much uh, that he himself came down in the form of one man, Christ Jesus, and shed blood for the nations. Hallelujah. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. The Bible tells us, if you look just a few more, and I'll be wrapping up here maybe within the next 10 minutes. Listen, the Bible says that God came in the form of Jesus Christ, that man, the Son came into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Listen, the world, when Jesus came, even the world still yet today, we are already condemned. We're born into condemnation. We're already condemned. So Jesus isn't coming to condemn because the world was already condemned. Jesus came to save. But when the world believes and when the world commits and the world obeys Jesus Christ and they follow his order of you must be born again of water and spirit, then the world is saved. But whenever Jesus comes, this already condemned world, and rather than believing Jesus, obeying Jesus, committing themselves to Jesus and the born-again experience, if they're going to reject him, they're rejecting their ways, and therefore they are left in their natural state of condemnation. Hear me. They're left in their natural state of condemnation when they reject the Lord. Now here's what the scripture says, talking about being born of the spirit, amen, being born again. The Bible says, Paul writing to the church at Rome in Romans 8, verses 1 through 4, there is therefore now no condemnation. 
to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. In other words, the law of the spirit, the spirit that I received has brought me out of the category of being condemned to being saved. Verse three, for what the law could not do, what law? The Old Testament law, the natural law, for what the law could not do and that it was weak through the flesh. Because <laughs> the law told you it was wrong, but it couldn't do anything about it. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. How? Humanity. And for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. That's your Christ Jesus who knew no sin, no sin in him, became sin, was cursed on the tree, and condemned sin on the tree. Whoa, I feel the Holy Ghost. Verse four, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. The righteousness of the law can only be fulfilled totally and thoroughly in our lives if we are after the spirit. And in order to do that, we must be born again of the spirit. See, Nicodemus and the Pharisaical group was real bent on trying to keep the righteousness of the law without any spirit experience. But in order for that to happen, they were going to have to be born again of the water and of the spirit. If you will, John 3, verses 19 through 21, I'm, I'm running, trying to make 100. <laughs> verses 19 through 21, in essence, in the previous lesson when we talked about light and life, the word light and life, we focused on uh, these particular verses. The world, the world was condemned because they refused to come to the light. All right. And they refused to come to the light and have their evil deeds exposed. Furthermore, they refused to have their evil deeds not just exposed, but reproved. And as a result of that, they hate the light because the light reveals. The light's going to show the evil deeds. And not only that, if someone ever wants to put a reproach upon me because of my evil deeds and start reproving them psh, on that. Or even maybe better stated, as the scripture even states, they loved darkness. Might I add what they were doing more than they loved the liberation of the light and what it could bring and offer them. But the Bible tells us that those who believe on Jesus and have the transformation of Jesus, this experience, we read it there in verse number 21, those that do it the truth, the Bible says that they don't mind the light because the deeds that are exposed by those who've had the experience and are trying to walk according to his commands and walk according to his precepts, what the light exposes Note now what the scripture says, that they are wrought in God. Those deeds that are manifest are they, those that they are wrought in God. It's showing the deeds, those deeds that are wrought in God, meaning the law of God is manifest in them because they are walking after the spirit and according to the spirit that they have received. What the light reveals for them is the manifestation of having the spirit of God in them and being obedient to it. And so in closing tonight, I say this. And again, we're speaking tonight 
Here's what you don't know, Nicodemus. This is Jesus to Nicodemus. Here's what you, here's what you don't know. That that being born of the water and the spirit thing is only going to be accomplished. Only going to be accomplished and it's accounted to the work of Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. And we have, I understand in John, four, in John 3 and verse 14 here, we have really what's highlighted the lifting up, the glorification, or more plainly put, the death only is highlighted here in John chapter number 3 through the lifting up of the Son of Man as the serpent was lifted up on the Poe comparison. But many times in scriptures you see there is a focusing on the death. Part and parcel for this reason because the natural process from death is then to bury. And you cannot have a resurrection unless something's died. And so many times in Scripture you see a focus on death because death then necessitates the others. Burial, and there can only be a resurrection if there's been a death. So the world, according to Jesus, can be saved by him if they believe, commit, trust, obey him particularly in the things that he's just conveyed to Nicodemus. But they will remain condemned, according to the word, if they refuse him. And these are just a few of the things that the master teacher and ruler of the Jews did not know. Jesus said, art thou a master of Israel? Knowest not these things. Now watch here with me just for a moment. And I'm closing. But again, I think it's important to put this there. Again, thou knowest not these things. That word know is just like we have studied those that are part of the first apostolic church family in our first Peter series, second Peter series. We're not just talking about an intellectual knowledge. We're talking about a knowledge that is due to experience, experiential knowledge. You're a master of Israel, but you know us not these things. Not just that Nicodemus maybe didn't have an intellectual understanding, but he's not yet experienced being born of the water or the spirit yet. Nor during this particular time in John 3 does that happen again. The spirit comes only after Jesus has been glorified. Amen. But I want you to know today that the death, burial, and resurrection has already taken place. The Holy Ghost is free, available, and there's no reason for you not to know, experience these very things that Jesus spoke unto Nicodemus. Hallelujah. I'm going to pray here this evening. Amen. There are some things that this ruler didn't know. And I pray if there were some things that you didn't know when we started tonight, perhaps you uh, have gained perhaps some knowledge, but hopefully even more so an understanding that would prompt obedience. Let's pray right now. Father, I come to you tonight. Lord, I'm thankful, God, for your word. I'm thankful, Lord Jesus, for the sacrifice of Christ. Thank you for listening. If you would like more information about our services and activities, you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter with the username FACMC. Again, that's FACMC. Thank you and have a blessed day.